Welcome to the Abstract Doctors podcast special, the Abstract Veterans Series. Today, Char Gatlin and Dr. Ron Seal speak with Dr. Kent Werner. For more information, please visit limbic-cenc.org. Visit the Abstract Doctors for information and upcoming podcasts. The Abstract Doctors podcast. The doctors are in. Open up your mind and say ah. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Uh, welcome back to another episode of the Abstract Veteran Series podcast with your co-host Char Gatlin and the always verbose Dr. Ron Seal. We <laughs> appreciate you having today. Coming to you, at least I am live from out here in the Treasure State in the great state of Montana where unfortunately the smoke has come back in from the fires. But uh, you know, we'll keep our fingers crossed that everyone's doing well, blows over, and then we can uh, can move forward. So, uh, as I've said in the past, you know, we attempt here um, at the Veteran Series podcast to look at the limbic sense of studies in a, order to, in a way, excuse me, to, to simplify science, uh, to put it out to the masses in a very understandable way, where, you know, we're all kind of on the same page and, and bringing, you know, so not only not transparency per se, but understanding to, to the science being conducted that ultimately will help the veteran and our civilian population. So with that, I'd like to introduce a very special guest today, Dr. Kent Warner. Dr. Warner, welcome. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thanks for being, thanks for being part of it. And uh, well, here we go. So tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, kind of what you do and where your role is uh, within the Olympic Census Study. Absolutely. So I'm an active duty Navy uh, sleep neurologist. There, there aren't many of those. Uh, I, I started off as a surface warfare officer serving on a destroyer, and then I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to switch over to the medical corps. And I am a uh, res, I did my residency and my scientific training in, in a neuroscience laboratory um, for 13 years at Johns Hopkins. And I then came back to put my uniform back on. And I have since uh, been serving in uh, multiple military hospitals as well, most recently at the Uniform Services University uh, as, their, um, as a staff neurologist and as a, as a professor and teaching the medical students and the residents. And in clinic, I see uh, wide variety of neurological conditions, but I have a focused Tuesday uh, for traumatic brain injury and sleep as, as uh, my subspecialty where I'm doing most of my research. That must be quite the change actually from surface warfare over to, to the medical corps. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I, on a side note, before we get into it, what made you make the jump? I think I always knew that I wanted to understand the brain better. And I applied for medical school even while I was at the Naval Academy. But uh, once I got accepted, I asked if Johns Hopkins would consider holding on to my, um, my admission for an indefinite period of time while I served at sea because I knew I would never get that opportunity again. And they shockingly said, okay. <laughs> so I, I, I knew I wanted to, to do neuroscience research and take care of patients and do them together because 
it's frustrating for me to see someone in clinic and say, well, I'm going to give you what I have and that's it. Instead of maybe we can do better and maybe we can use science to get there. And so that's been my motivation all along. But surface warfare was a really exciting uh, interlude. And, and I'm so thankful I had that opportunity also. Wow, interesting story. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about um, the study that you published in the special issue in the journal Brain Injury. Oh, absolutely. So this story was kind of exciting for me because it, it really comes on the tails of a paper that we had published in uh, the journal Sleep uh, just a, a few months before. And it started when, uh, when I was joining up with the Sensi team and asking about uh, their interesting discoveries in biomarkers. Now, what is a biomarker? That's a, a good question, I think, to, to address first. And, and I'll say that it's really just any kind of measurement that you can take, whether it's from the blood or maybe with an MRI scan or even with an EEG sort of electrical signal measurement, uh, just any kind of measurement that might happen to inform us about what's going on in the body. And so when they uh, showed me that they had collected biomarkers related to the brain cells dying, the similar process that happens after brain injury, and it's also been connected to dementia or you know, conditions like Alzheimer's disease, I was really fascinated because the link between dementia and sleep um, was just making itself known out in the field. So people with, with uh, disrupted sleep were developing dementia. Um, in fact, you could take a mouse and deprive it of sleep and it would develop these old Alzheimer's plaques in the brain. And so that was, that was really the backstory that made me interested in asking a question of the Sensi study. And the question I asked was, well, you guys are linking traumatic brain injury to dementia, just like a lot of other large studies have shown that if you had a, if you had a TBI and the more you've had, the worse chances are when you're older, you'll have a, a higher probability of getting dementia. And I just you know, looked at all those studies and I said, well, no one has taken into account this interesting link with sleep before. And so... Um, I asked if we could just take a look at all of these uh, sensory participants sleep and see how it correlates with their um, biomarkers of nerve cells dying. Um, one of them is called neurofilament light. That's just a protein that is inside a brain cell. And when the brain cell dies, it gets released into the bloodstream. And so we noticed that indeed, the worse of a sleeper you were, the more of that neurofilament light you had in your blood, telling us that, you know, we don't know the chicken or the egg scenario. Maybe you're getting worse sleep because more of your cells died, or maybe more of your cells died because you're getting worse sleep. But we were the first really to report that that link exists. And that was kind of a big deal, I think, for the field. And so uh, this paper followed that story because 
We also said to ourselves, well, if we look at the scores for sleep, you know, just like a survey you fill out, and then we look at the scores for depression or the scores for PTSD-like symptoms or the surveys for things like balance problems and headaches and pain, things that happen with uh, TBI patients or brain injury patients. They, the, all of those scores seem to line up with each other. And then it occurred to me that, well, maybe, you know, it's going to be hard to, to separate the relationship with sleep and these neurodegenerative proteins from all of these other types of symptoms. So that's kind of the backstory of, of the paper, if that's helpful. And, and I can answer more questions before I, I tell you about what we found. No, that's, that's very, very helpful. But uh, not to sound cliche, and I know this is a very generalized question, but could you define for our audience, you know, what is a good night's sleep? Uh, yeah, I think we're still trying to figure that out. <laughs> I know that if you ask half of the people working in the Pentagon or uh, in all of their subordinates throughout the country or the world, I should say, uh, they'd say, I don't know, five or six hours. <laughs> You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, you know, it's, it's very subjective why I bring it up. I mean, I, I personally, you know, like a good eight hours if I can get it, but you know, being married with two dogs and a cat, it sounds like I'm in a lumber yard sometimes in the middle of the night and I have to get up and, and go down to the couch and needless to say, I'm grumpy the next day. I, I know this, this sounds simple, but I mean, a lot of our listeners, I really think can, you know, can, can understand that, you know, I mean, sleep is, is definitely key, particularly when you listed some of the other the other unfortunate things that go along with PTSD and some depression. And, um, you know, I mean, it's uh, definitely makes sense. Um, I had a question though, kind of non sequitur um, in reading through your manuscript, you were measuring combat exposure. How are you, how are you measuring that? What's the instrument or, or, or questionnaire? How are you doing that? Oh, that's a good question. So there is a, a very structured set of interviews that go on when someone joins the Sensi limbic study. And that that involves uh, both review of records and a structured interview with, you know, how many hits have you had? When, when have you had it? Tell us the circumstances. Were there witnesses to it? So it certainly isn't foolproof, I'll tell you that. But uh, th that's the technique that we use. And, you know, there's a structured interview um, standard for the TBI field set by Ohio State University and, and we follow that. Interesting, it's always the, the tool. I mean, I know combat exposure can, can vary between different MOSs, different branches, different occupational specialties, et cetera. And it's, there's a lot of subjectivity to it. But then again, you know, I mean, there's a lot more I think that, that goes into that pot that, that we, don't, uh, we don't understand. Ron? Um. I think another major challenge in doing this kind of research is just uh, being able to accurately measure sleep. Um, you know, most people are, are not particularly good self-reporters of sleep. I know I've had some sleep issues and uh, w was shocked at how inaccurate I was uh, in, in how I thought I was sleeping. Um, and, uh, you know, even, um, you know, Using a, a, a you know a, a smartwatch with a sleep function and all they they're not always that accurate. Um, so uh, 
uh, and then the balancing act is, you know, having someone actually do a, a sleep study in a lab is actually fairly time-consuming, travel, expensive. Um, so, so how do you balance trying to get the best uh, and most accurate uh, uh, and, and uh, I guess, the economical measures of sleep in your research? Well, we are putting a lot of effort into that question. So I'm glad you brought it up because it's, it's crucial. I, I think that the watches are getting better and better. And their ability to determine how much time you're sleeping on average over a week, per se, is not too far off from our very best clinical equipment. Where their accuracy fails uh, dismally, and, and yet they, they continue to tell their, uh, their public that, oh, we've measured this much deep sleep and this much REM. Uh, those measurements uh, fail uh, pretty badly when we compare them to uh, the only way to really tell what stage someone is sleeping in, and that's using electrodes on the head or the EEG. So although they're inaccurate in the staging of sleep, they're pretty good with how much time you're spending in bed. And we'd much rather know what we can learn about your sleep time in the comfort of your home, in your real life situation, than have you come in for a lab sleep, which is you know, not, not a comfortable environment, very uh, artificial in many ways, and so not incredibly useful clinically. And then the next frontier will be, well, what can we do with the sleep staging? Is that even important? And that's something that we, we can't yet say. I, I think it's highly likely to be important. Um, and so, you know, there are headbands you can buy to wear to bed, and that will give accurate information using EEG, uh, the electroencephalogram. And so we're using those in our research, but I don't think we're ready to stick a headband on everybody and say, you know, wear this for the rest of your life so we can tell you about your sleep. But the wristwatches and the rings aren't too bad. And a lot of people are doing that for us. You know, it's interesting. The, when I went to ranger school, we just cat now. <laughs> that was, that was the, I don't know if that counts as good sleep, but I was the only sleep. And sometimes the, the only sleep is better than good sleep. But I, I like the, uh, in, in all seriousness, <laughs> foolishness aside, well, it's not foolish. It actually did, it did happen. But I like the uh, interest. I was going to ask you, and you answered the question for me, sort of the evolution, but you focused on the technology. Where do you see the technology going with this? I mean, is it, and we're sort of stepping outside the box here, but Considering what you're looking at, do you think it's possible to field that kind of stuff in five to 10 years and, and push it out? Yes. Um, so you want to make sure that you have a good reason for doing so, right? And I think we can all agree that sleep is a major problem, a major problem for a lot of people, whether they had brain injury or not. And everyone wants to improve on their sleep because it impacts so much of our daily lives. So if we say that we agree, we need to know more about sleep and how to make it better, then the field seems to have followed that because if you look at all the devices out there, uh, the most popular ones like an Apple Watch or a Garmin Phoenix or a Fitbit, uh, their technology has actually surpassed uh, the clinical expensive 
technology that we use in our, our uh, clinical labs. And so we know that they recognize the desire in the consumer world and in the research world, we want to know more. And it is a poorly understood field. So I think what we're going to be seeing more and more of are these headbands that have access to the brain waves. There are already a couple of them out there. One that's quite comfortable and frequently used, so much so that they're routinely selling out. So it's, it's, wow. it's a higher demand uh, than you might think just in the general population. There are also uh, the idea that you might be able to get some of those electrical waves from an earbud. And so there are some groups looking to, to make earbud, earbuds that can you know, mute the noise on the outside and also measure your brain waves while you're wearing it and give you more uh, detailed sleep information. But I haven't, uh, I haven't seen anything ready for prime time just yet, but that, that seems to be where it's going. Customization like a Fitbit watch. That's, uh, that's interesting, very interesting. I know I was having multiple funny thoughts about uh, an earbud, like a Q-tip that like goes in, uh, you know, halfway to to measure the signals going on there. Um, I was also thinking, you know, you could customize these headbands, you know, to to be Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, uh, and uh, you know, perhaps make them uh, more appealing for people to to wear, at least for the duration you would want them to wear them for the study. Um, it, you know, because it would be real interesting to be able to look at individual sleep and then have them track. Well, how much did you sleep? Uh, excuse me. How much did you? Uh, how much alcohol did you consume that particular day? And when did you consume it? And can you see differences in sleep based on a number of behavioral issues, as well as, you, you know, uh, perhaps being able to use it as a really good screen for, uh, you, you know, for suggesting a diagnosis that, you know, might require an actual medical referral. So um, uh, that's exciting. I was not aware of the of those products uh, being out there either. Um, uh, so. That's an interesting point, Ron, because that's, you actually predicted exactly what's happening now in the market. Uh, you know, Whoop, for example, has, has just taken everybody by storm. It's very popular wrist-worn device that doesn't even give you a, a screen on the front. So it's not even much of a watch anymore. It's just a strap to measure your biology. And they make all kinds of claims about, you know, oh, did you have too much alcohol or did you work out too hard without enough recovery? And it gives you sort of a readiness score. And a lot of the special operators are wearing these uh, with their human performance labs, trying to collect data using these devices. Uh, but what, what's sort of missing here is the science behind uh, the validity of their, their claims about how ready you feel. And sometimes you have patients uh, letting their device tell them how they feel. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll say, oh, doc, you know, I... I got horrible sleep last night. And I'm like, oh, really? You don't feel so well? And they're like, no, no, but look at my watch. It says my sleep was terrible. <laughs> so, you know, oh, I'm not ready today. Look at my HRV score. Um, but, you know, the, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So they'll uh, say my score is so bad. And that correlates every time with when I don't do so well in a presentation. 
So it, it, it has its ups and downs, but that's the way technology and, and business and uh, science has to try to tag along and we'll eventually get there. I just know sleep is so critical because it's, you know, for, for depression, for example, I'm pretty sure there's a pretty good literature that, you know, sleep is one of the first signs, uh, either it leads to depression or it's a first sign of a potential depressive episode. And usually if someone is depressed with sleep issues, the sleep is the, the last issue to be resolved. So I, I really feel for the treating clinician trying to figure out, okay, is this a sleep hygiene issue? You know, what time do you go to sleep? You know, at 11 o'clock every night, you know, you, you put something on somebody though, you might find it's one o'clock every night. Um, so That's right. uh, you know, there's just so many um, factors in trying to get, um, accurate and honest information uh honest may be a little bit too strong a word but um you know people are just not always the best self-reporters of, of behavior and all and uh, you know so and and this is, so many things can impact sleep that uh, uh that it's really a challenging issue for clinicians to uh to be able to manage so why don't you tell us a couple of the key findings uh, uh that you had uh, in the study Absolutely. And, and that has a good connection to what you just said, because when we were looking at these levels of biomarkers in the blood, like this neurofilament light, or there's another one called amyloid, and that's, that's the thing that gums up the brain during Alzheimer's disease. You see it in their, you see it in their brains after they pass away. Uh, you know, we, we were really the first to sort of plot all of these on a graph and then right there alongside them, plot their depression scores and plot their sleep scores and plot their uh, sort of hypervigilance PTSD symptom scores. And then alongside that, plot their um, balance and pain scores, their, uh, their TBI-related symptoms. And shockingly, or maybe not shockingly, they all lined up beautifully. And in fact, if you just looked at the sleep, the sleep questions alone, you could use that data to predict what their biomarkers would be. And so there certainly does appear to be what we, what we found and what we reported is that these uh, symptoms, although they don't all directly look like they're sleep related, all of them can be predicted by the sleep. And in fact, um, if you build a, a predictive model and try to guess what someone's biomarker levels will be, uh, having sleep in there is one of the most important pieces of information. And so it really, I think, uh, should alert the field. And uh, maybe it's not, not a purposeful pun, but wake up the field just a little bit so they can understand how important uh, it is to track sleep in these types of studies if you want to get good information we could prevent the dementia and prevent the depression and the, and the ptsd and the pain and the balance issues and the focus issues um uh, hey dr more warner, just to, not to interrupt but you're you're breaking up just a bit dr warner we're having a little tough time bringing you in over here Oh, sh oh, sorry about that. I, I yeah, thought I had a that's, great connection. That's, that's much better. I'm trying to monitor. 
I see you're taking a walk in the park. You have some good PT. I like it. But the you're breaking up just a, just a touch. Could you cover that last that last sentence? Yeah, yeah. So I was saying um, by seeing that you know depression and PTSD and uh, sort of the the cognitive and balance complaints that you get in in TBI patients by seeing that they all line up with uh, with the sleep complaints and that those all sort of correlate with and help them, are able to predict how many of these biomarkers of brain injury that you have in your blood, it sort of matches the biology with uh, the subjective symptoms. And it also demonstrates that sleep is sort of woven into each of those areas. And so, you know, it raises the question and the, the question we're really trying to raise to the field is, hey guys, uh, we really need to make sure we're capturing sleep better when we're looking at these patients and trying to come up with solutions because it may be that creative approaches to treating their sleep will address all of these uh, other issues uh, kind of like a you know four for one type of uh, type of situation so th that's really the main message that comes from the paper so you know, to our to our listeners, our veteran listeners as well. You know, what should they take away? You know, the ones with blast related TBI or just TBI in general uh, from this research. Oh, that's a good question. Uh, blast may, in fact, be different, and I think the majority of our veterans who have TBI have some exposure to blast, uh, and only different in as much as their sleep disruption might be worse. And it may actually be different. So we're trying to figure that out still. But the message that they should take away is that, you know, whatever, whatever discomfort you're experiencing after your injury, and a lot of it can be cognitive, you really have to focus on the value of getting help for your sleep um, if, if you want to address these other problems successfully. You know, I... I, I take care of a lot of headache patients, for example, and a lot of people with TBI suffer from headaches. And, you know, they're going to come to me saying, I tried this drug, I tried that drug, nothing seems to be working. And then I say, well, tell me about your sleep. Oh, I, I can't sleep at all. I get four or five hours a night. And I said, well, you know, taking the best medication for you that would eliminate your headaches would only work if your sleep were in the right place. Otherwise it's like pissing on a forest fire, if you can say that. <laughs> That's okay, we, we have some edit power, Ron. <laughs> yeah, and I know we're getting ready to wrap up here, but I was just gonna note as well that, you know, individuals with PTSD, they have a lot of nightmares. Uh, sometimes they really don't like falling asleep <laughs> because they have terrible nightmares, yeah. uh, you know, that, um, you know, that awaken them and, and cause significant distress. So again, all of these issues together uh, really make it uh, quite the quandary for the for the practicing clinician. So, You're right. um, what what kind of um, uh, what uh, we're going to be wrapping up here? What are what is the take home message for uh, individuals, uh, whether they be uh, veterans or service members or family members or clinicians? What would be an overall take home message or two from uh, from 
uh, either this study or from your knowledge, a uh, good knowledge of the sleep literature, generally speaking? Sure, sure. Well, I, really quickly, I'd like to address the nightmare population because uh, they they have an extra burden that we didn't talk about, and it's 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 likely that that is uh, a big um, problem creator for their sleep and their mood, and and a lot of them just either don't mention it or give up when they're seeking help. And I really want to encourage people in that group to uh, see a specialist in sleep. You know, I, I take care of these patients every day. And, and although it's challenging, there's always a way to make progress. So, uh, you know, the, and that really directly connects to the overall take-home message of this work, which is the, the, the problems in mood and cognition and balance, uh, the TBI uh, lists of symptoms all run with sleep um, in the in the sleep uh, questionnaires, and those all correlate with evidence in the blood that there has been some damage. And what we what we want to make the field and also the patients uh, out there and the family members aware of is you you really have to pay attention to and not give up on sleep, no matter how frustrated and hopeless you might think it is. Uh, it, it's a key to each of these realms. And uh, we do have great uh, experts out there that can, can help you on that journey. And so I think that's the most important thing because sleep has been linked to uh, the feelings of hopelessness that are connected with people that think they might want to take their lives you know suicidality has been linked to sleep problems countlessly so uh that that's always a major concern of mine you know that no one can uh under no, no one can overstate the importance of of uh the current suicidality rate that we have with our veterans and and i think it is directly connected to sleep quality in many ways so, so that's, that's really my message, uh, especially to the audience here. No, thank you, Dr. Warner. I mean, that was, it's a very, very well stated, a very powerful message, you know, and I, for one, you know, on behalf of veterans everywhere, I want to, want to thank you for what you do. Um, you know, you may not be in surface warfare anymore, but you're still in the fight and, and that's, what's important on, on many levels. And once again, you know, on behalf of veterans everywhere, thank you. Thank you for being part of this. Um, also like to thank you for coming on the show today. And it sounds like, uh, You've had a nice nature walk in the park right there, getting your getting your steps in. I like the I like the technique. On, and for our audience that can't see this, Dr. Warner is actually doing a walk in a park somewhere. Is he's is he's multitasking? Is he doing the interview, talking to us, and bringing us up uh, up on sleep? And I'm pretty sure you're going to have a pretty good night's sleep as well tonight with the with the with the exercise component. So hey, thank you for being part of the show. We really appreciate it, and you know we wish you the best in in the progression of your study. And, um, you know, if you ever have any kind of questions or have any more thoughts for our show right here, please let us know. So I will do it. It's an honor. Thanks for having me. And, and my, my brain works best when my blood's really moving. So, uh, sitting down all day on zoom calls, uh, is, is not, is, is not motivating. So th this is my solution. <laughs> right on. Well, you have a great day and thanks again. You too. Take care. So ladies and gentlemen, we've come unfortunately to the end of another 
episode of our abstract veteran series with myself, Char, Char Gatlin, excuse me, and my co-host, the always esteemed Dr. Ron Steele. Um, special thanks to Dr. Kent Warner. Uh, great interview, great insight, and a great, great takeaway. Uh, also, would like to thank our uh, team that remains unseen, the Colonel, Miss AC, and Ron in the box up top. On behalf of all of us, we look forward to seeing you on our next episode. Until then, take care and have a great day. Thank you to Dr. Kent Werner for joining Char Gatlin and Dr. Ron Seal today on the Abstract Doctors podcast special, the Abstract Veteran Series. For more information, please visit limbic-cenc.org. The Abstract Doctors is produced by The Abstract Athlete. For more information, please visit theabstractathlete.com. And as always, follow us on all of our social media platforms under The Abstract Doctors and The Abstract Athlete. The office is now closed, but join us for a next appointment soon.